to the Insatiable Appetite, uh, the Hartman Group's insight-driven podcast on all things food and consumer culture. I'm Melissa Abbott, and I'm here today with my colleague, Stas Schechtman, to uncover why several niche and premium brands that were acquired by legacy brands just a few years ago are now selling these brands off, or in the case of Hershey, actually selling back to its original founders. So, hey Stas, welcome to the Insatiable Appetite. So excited to have you to here today. Maybe you could tell tell me a little bit about the background around Hershey and the jerky brand Crave. Hey Melissa, yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. I think it's a, a really interesting topic and, and one that we've been talking about for a number of years. Um, and, and this was really interesting to hear because we were following this back in 2015 when uh, right, Hershey announced that it would first acquire Crave. And at the time, that was a, a brand that was a leader in, the, in, in a fast-growing jerky category. Um, and, and Hershey acquired it for, I think it was 218 million, something like that. Um, and at the time, the brand was growing in triple digits. So it was a really fast-growing brand. It was riding that wave of interest in, in meat snacks and, and some of the, the ta- connections to, to culture, interest in protein, um, as well as that, that wave of premium products that were really boasting clean ingredients, authentic production narratives, uh, new interesting flavors. And, and at the time, selling to, to Hershey's um, meant that, uh, that the brand would, would have access to uh, something that it might not have as a as a small premium brand and that was that that legacy company supply chain and its supply chain management along with its merchandising abilities and, and distribution power so something fairly uh, attractive for a, a small growing brand um, and so now here we are five years later and uh, John Sebastiani uh, who was the founder of Crave and is uh, the founder of Sonoma Brands has reacquired Crave back from Hershey's uh, for some that's undisclosed, um, and apparently Crave has been somewhat disappointing for Hershey in that time. That's really interesting, isn't it, when we think about how the snacking space, and so it was at that height of all things protein, and even in our health and wellness surveys, we were finding that protein was surpassing fiber, which has long been you know, the most coveted ingredient of all things positive from the health and wellness standpoint. So it, it, was, it seemed like an interesting move in terms of Hershey, how they envisioned expanding their portfolio into territory that now we see required something of a learning curve, particularly as supply chains are, you know, they're very distinct from the confectionery and more specifically that chocolate sector. And now, in, of course, hindsight is always, you know, so valuable, but um, they didn't seem to foresee that at the time. And so while this might suggest that like meat and jerky snacks are plateauing, it, it might seem that way, right? But we would say the issue here might be more about scalability within the premium marketplace. Would you agree with that, Sass? Yeah, I I think there are a number of different dynamics, and and some of those may have to do with with the category, but I I think... The interesting, the really interesting one here is is more about that dynamic between premium and, and legacy companies, and um, you know exactly what you were saying. I think the snacking space has become really competitive over the years, just in those five years since Hershey bought it, and and it seems like for from Hershey's perspective, Crave wasn't really providing that that growth. 
uh, it wasn't quite as sure of a thing, uh, perhaps for the company, particularly. And 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 now that the company is looking to really focus on its core brands and categories, um, that kind of a, a smaller brand, perhaps outside that range, isn't quite as uh, attractive um, or, or appealing for it. And I think that's kind of that interesting um, dynamic there, right? These the sort of bigger brands um, are, are really good at, at innovating and marketing for a mass audience, for the masses. And that's something that's a bit harder for a a smaller brand like Crave, um, right? The, the premium marketplace isn't necessarily about mass appeal. It's it's to, to a certain extent uh, a minority of Americans. They're, they're niches, and and um, they may be loyal customers, uh, but they're not mass customers. And and I think the meat snack category itself as well definitely required a kind of a go to market strategy and a supply chain that that might have been perhaps outside of Hershey's um, uh, immediate wheelhouse. Um, so, you know, I think there's that hunger for protein and, and snacking in the public, and that does bode well for, for Crave, and I think it does suggest that it has a chance to regain some of that former glory, um, but it also speaks to, to some of those difficulties that legacy CPG companies have in in growing in that premium space. It, it's sort of success in that space requires a little bit more than just being able to buy oneself into it. That's an excellent point, and it's really interesting to see how Crave, I remember us tracking that brand prior to Hershey acquiring it, and it seemed like it was so innovative at that time. And within this, these the span of a few years, there have been so many other jerky and other, um, whether it's alternative protein or other uh, jerky and meat snacks, have really just gone so far in terms of attributes and benefits and culinary distinctions that it's almost looked like Crave has had a harder time keeping up. So it really does kind of, to your point, point to this fact that you know the it's the smaller players are a lot more nimble and that seems really challenging for larger players to execute can you think of any things that could kind of help these larger players as we you know kind of figure out some ways that you know moving forward looking to the future uh you know with Protein still continues to be an important thing. Confectionery still is important. Snacking continues to be um, highly prominent for most consumers um, these days, especially you know as we're hunkered down home. You know, snacking is is not going anywhere by by any stretch. You know, what are some things that some of the the bigger players can do to perhaps incorporate some of these more nimble practices that the smaller players are able to do really well? Yeah, well, I, I think that 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 word nimble is is kind of precisely uh, the the point. It, it can be a, a challenge for some of the the bigger bigger brands, especially when. They, they have some different notions of, of, of what success means. And, and when you try to kind of scale something up um, in the context of a premium category and you have all these other entrants, um, you know, perhaps it, it loses something in, in that scaling uh, or loses an ability to kind of to reinvent itself and have that kind of flexibility. And, and certainly that's I think that's the attraction for smaller brands looking to, to be purchased by larger Players, uh, right? They they they're well-oiled machines. These big CPG, these big legacy companies. They've got that 
strong management. They've got risk management. They've got all the legal protections. They they can ensure that their top and bottom lines are covered. They've got the distribution and the merchandising. But what premium brands really have are, are that, that kind of small, nimble organizations that can pivot when strategically necessary. They can respond to shifts in culture, to, to um, new entrants in the market in, in ways that may be a little bit more difficult for, uh, for, lar- for the larger legacy brands. They don't necessarily get stuck in the weeds um, quite as much when making these sort of important decisions, uh, business decisions. Um, and then they also, I think, work within smaller margins than, than uh, a lot of CPG companies are, are comfortable with. So I, I think for CPG companies, looking at that, that nimbleness, that flexibility that smaller brands bring, um, you know, questions of how much do they allow those smaller brands to kind of maintain that flexibility, even while they get the support of the distribution and the mar- merchandising and the marketing of the larger brands, um, having a certain amount of patience uh, that it takes to scale a small pre- premium brand as it grows, um, knowing that, that maybe that ROI isn't necessarily going to, to come as, as quickly uh, as, as, as perhaps they, they are, are looking for it to come, but knowing that, that that's sort of what um, tapping into that premium market means uh, is, is a, a, a different kind of perspective on, on who you're connecting with and, and how you're connecting to, to food culture. I think that's a great point about the ROI is that the expectation is that, oh, this brand is just going to help us just kind of grow exponentially. But the reality is it's that patience and patience. Um, And I'm thinking, too, about the brand Uncle Matt's Orange Juice. Um, They recently were bought back from Dean Foods after they filed. Dean Foods had filed bankruptcy last fall. And Matt McLean, Uncle Matt himself, um, he said that Dean Foods was a great company to partner with. And the fact that they were an $8 billion publicly traded company, he talked about how it required processes that were really different from a small company. And so, you know, this this helps us to all understand a little bit more about how it poses some of some interesting guardrails for big brands as, you know, they really strive to innovate by tapping into those deep growth drivers of today. So, you know, there are certainly lessons to be learned about incorporating, you know, things like analytical skills from the bigger players among the, you know, the bigger brands and then also how to look at data and and then from the smaller niche brands or the more premium brands, that unique story to truly drive that innovation in business. So when, when I think about this, too, I know we get a lot of questions from clients um, over in our retainer services department in particular about, you know, like, what are some brands that have been able to do this really well? So, you know, I'm just going to say, hey, let's keep this conversation open and just start to think a little bit more about, um, you know, how we can share this out with our audience and start to point to some brands that have done, done a really good job with incorporating some of these more niche brands in. So I don't know, this to me is tremendously fascinating. So I look forward to continuing the discussion, you know, around growth drivers as a way to innovate for small uh, niche brands. So I'm really, I look forward to discussing this further with you and other folks at the Hartman Group and really appreciate all your perspectives today. Yeah, my, my pleasure. I think it's a, it's a really fascinating topic and, and that, that dynamic between the, the, the premium space and, and, and the large players is, is 
really telling in terms of how how to connect with consumers, how to connect with culture um, in, in a way that, that is both sort of um, s- supports business goals, but is also really uh, authentic and, and connects to to where where consumers in our culture are going. So it's fascinating conversation. Yeah, I love the point about authenticity too. So thank you everyone for joining us today on the Insatiable Appetite and stay tuned until next time. Uh, when Stas and I gather again to to share more of uh, Hartman's insights around uh, niche brands, uh, premium brands, and legacy players. Uh, we look forward to that next discussion. Take care and have a wonderful day, everyone.